Uh, I lived and worked in England uh, a few years ago for a couple of years, and while I was there, I was blessed with the resources to do a bit of travelling. And I once uh, spent a week in Italy, in northern Italy, travelling by myself. So I was hiking and sightseeing, uh, being sun safe the whole time, of course, and I ate the most amazing food. Uh, now, of course, I think it's very socially acceptable to eat lunch out by yourself. Uh, but I think it's a bit trickier to eat in a restaurant alone for dinner. I still did it, and I can still remember uh, this amazing meal of squid ink spaghetti that I had. I mean, it looks maybe a bit like dirt or something, but believe me, it was, it's one of the best meals I've ever had. Uh, but not long after I returned home to England, I had a meal with my Bible study group. I was just at home, I was a slow cooker meal that I'd popped on that, that morning, nothing particularly special. Uh, but there was something different about that meal that I hadn't experienced in Italy. Uh, the feeling of connecting with friends, enjoying food and time together. Meals and community are important to us, aren't they? There's just something about eating together that breaks down barriers helps the conversation to flow and builds relationship. Uh, perhaps it's because eating together involves all of our senses. Our taste and smell, of course, but we also see each other enjoying the food. We hear all those sounds of talking and eating, uh, as well as contented silence. We touch cutlery or the food. We jostle each other as we find our space at the table. Eating together reminds us of our bodily presence with one another. And that sense of connection is something that we all look for. Uh, loneliness has been called the defining condition of the 21st century, even before the pandemic. The medical world recognises that loneliness predisposes us to illness and shorter lifespans. And many of us got a taste of what social isolation felt like last year, or last few years during the pandemic. And so this side of extended lockdowns and even still now where we see, can sometimes see each other as potential sources of infection, how do we find connection? Uh, on top of that, as God's people, we read in the Bible that Jesus became human and died in our place to connect us to God. But how do we connect with God when we can't see him or touch him? Uh, well, it might surprise you to realize that God has instituted meals with his people through history as signs of his connection, his relationship to them and to one another. And the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate about once every fortnight and which we'll celebrate today, is one of those meals. Uh, Jesus introduced this meal to his disciples the night before he died. It's recorded in three out of four of the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'm going to read uh, the Luke version in chapter 22 of Luke. So when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Well, this meal continued to be celebrated by Jesus' followers after his death, his resurrection, and his return to heaven. Uh, But historically, the Lord's Supper has actually been one of the most fraught areas of disagreement and disunity in the church, uh, which is tragically ironic in a way, considering it's a meal that's meant to bring God's people together. The Lord's Supper was shared as a common meal uh, up until the late second century, like Jesus did with his disciples, but gradually it became more similar to the way that we celebrate it today as part of a church service with just a small amount of wine and bread. Uh, In the Middle Ages, the doctrine of transubstantiation developed. So transubstantiation is a very large word, uh, which describes what the church thought happened to the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. So the belief was that the essence of the bread and wine changed into the actual body and blood of Christ, even though the outward appearance stayed the same. So it still tasted like bread and wine, still looked like bread and wine. Uh, This was commonly agreed in the Western church until the Reformation in the 16th century, and that was one of the major kind of uh, things that, that caused the Reformation, when people like Martin Luther pushed back against that tradition. Uh, They looked again to the Bible and eventually came to the conclusion that transubstantiation is not supported by God's word. So there's a lot more to the history of the Lord's Supper than that, but this is kind of a helpful starting point for us. And as we think about, as we've been thinking about the why we do the things that we do at church for the last few weeks, uh, the Lord's Supper might look like one of the strangest things that we do. So... Over the next little while, we're going to consider what the Lord's Supper is and why we do it. Uh, Firstly, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. So we've come across the term covenant twice, just in our Bible reading so far. Uh, In the passage I just read from Luke's Gospel, Jesus took the cup of wine and said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then in our New Testament reading that Pat read from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul quotes these words by Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, God makes lots of covenants throughout the Bible. And these covenants are agreements of relationship between God and his people in which he promises to bless them and be with them as they live with him as their Lord. And quite often, God confirms a covenant with a meal, pointing to his abundant provision for his people. In the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, God rescues his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, and he makes a covenant with them. God's final act of judgment in Egypt, which leads to Israel's escape, is the plague on the firstborn, the death of every firstborn child in Egypt. However, God tells the Israelites to kill a lamb and smear its blood across the doorframe so that the plague will pass over their houses. And then the lamb was roasted and eaten by the household. And this was the first Passover meal, uh, which was repeated every year as a way for Israel to remember God's salvation and judgment. 
And you might have noticed the word Passover in that Luke passage, because Jesus and his disciples were actually celebrating a Passover meal together when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But as you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' final Passover meal with his disciples, uh, you might notice that something is missing. There's no mention of a lamb. What's Passover without the lamb? It's like an American Thanksgiving without turkey or a birthday without cake. It's almost the whole point. But by doing this, the gospel writers are pointing to the final Passover lamb, to Jesus, the lamb of God, who the next day would take away the sin of the world through his death on the cross. And so when Jesus breaks the bread and offers the cup to his disciples, he institutes a meal that invites us to look back to his death on the cross and the beginning of the new covenant. And by taking part in the Lord's Supper, we're taking part in a covenant meal. By eating the bread, which is a sign of Christ's body, and drinking the wine, a sign of Christ's blood, we're reminded of Jesus' death and all the promises and blessings that God has poured out on us as a result. But the Lord's Supper isn't just a meal of remembrance uh, that encourages us as we recall the truths of the gospel. It it is that, uh, but it's much more than that as well. In the Lord's Supper, God continues to bless us as his covenant people. Uh, In this meal, Christ is present with us by the Holy Spirit and through faith so that when we come to the table, we expect to meet our Saviour. This means that the Lord's Supper is a meal exclusively for God's family. I don't think there's anything else that we do at church which is only for those who trust Jesus. But that's because the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal, a meal for God's covenant people. That means children who are being raised in believing families are welcome. And anyone who professes to love and follow Jesus is welcome. Not that the bread and wine have some sort of superstitious power, uh, but rather the Lord's Supper embodies God's abundant grace and love to his people. And when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we express our complete dependence on Jesus. In the same way that a mother breastfeeds her baby who clings onto her, In the Lord's Supper, we cling on to our Lord Jesus as he spiritually feeds us and strengthens our faith. Uh, So firstly, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a family meal. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, the, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth about the way that they were sharing the Lord's Supper. And he's so horrified by what he hears that he says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch. Paul says that considering their current behaviour, it'd be better if they didn't meet together at all as a church. So what are the Corinthians doing that's so bad? Well, the Corinthian church would have met in someone's home at that point in time, and they would have celebrated the Lord's Supper by bringing food to share and eat together, like an ancient Roman potluck. Uh, However, it seems that the wealthy believers, who had more leisure time and more resources, were arriving earlier, bringing larger quantities and better quality food so that they took up the best seats in the dining room and ate most of the food. 
And then by the time everyone else arrived, uh, workers and slaves who were probably coming after work because there wasn't a, a legalised day off in the Roman Empire, these other believers were forced to eat in the atrium or courtyard. And since they couldn't afford a lot of food, they didn't have an opportunity to share in the abundance of the common meal. So some got drunk while others went hungry. It's a terrible picture of division for a meal that should unite God's people. You can see God, uh, Paul's anger in his words in verse 22. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating, humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. In contrast to Jesus' self-giving grace when he shared the first Lord's Supper with his disciples, the wealthy members of the Corinthian church are only thinking of themselves. It's absolutely shameful. The Lord's Supper is a family meal, a meal that recognises and celebrates the church's unity in Christ. And 1 Corinthians 11 points out that this unity particularly involves providing for the needy in our church and community. The Lord's Supper embodies God's abundance to us and in turn challenges us to give abundantly to those in need. Uh, while the real meal that our church celebrates once a month is not the Lord's Supper, uh, it's a meal that reflects part of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Uh, by providing an abundance of delicious food in a safe environment as we listen to and love members of our community, we're doing what God wants us to do, caring and providing for those with all sorts of need, financial, social and, and otherwise. So how exactly might we fall into the same trap as the wealthy believers in Corinth when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, let me keep reading. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 11, from verse 27, where Paul's criticism gets even stronger. He says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Uh, taking part in the Lord's Supper involves self-reflection, looking inward at our hearts and humbly and honestly examining ourselves to see if we're eating and drinking in a worthy manner. But as we consider these words in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, it becomes clear that these words aren't meant to crush us if we feel guilt over our sin or if we're feeling particularly distant from God at the moment. Of course, we should confess our sin and our Heavenly Father loves to forgive us when we do that, but that's not who Paul is warning. Rather, before we share the Lord's Supper, we should reflect on two areas in particular. We should reflect on our attitudes to those who are more needy than ourselves. And we should discern Christ's body, as Paul says, that is, we should reflect on our relationships with other believers. If we say we follow Jesus and aren't prepared to give generously to help the poor among us, or if we treat people of lower classes as second-class citizens, we should refrain from sharing in the Lord's Supper. 
And similarly, if we've been unloving or hurtful toward another believer and haven't been reconciled to them, we should refrain from sharing in the Lord's Supper. Now, none of us are perfect. We're all sinners and Christ welcomes us when we come with all our struggles and doubts to take the Lord's Supper. After all, that's the whole point of the meal, to nourish us with Christ's love. But we have to take care that we eat and drink in a worthy manner. The Lord's Supper is a family meal that symbolises our unity as Christ's body and should reflect our love and care for one another. So we've looked at the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal, the Lord's Supper is a family meal, and finally, the Lord's Supper anticipates the wedding meal. Uh, so I love a good wedding reception. Of course, the wedding ceremony is wonderful and important, uh, but you can't beat a good wedding reception, can you? At their best, you get fancy outfits to look at, tear-jerking speeches, lots of family, kids running around maybe, joyous celebration, hopefully even a great dance floor. And the Bible, it uses a lot of wedding and marriage imagery to talk about God's relationship to his people, especially the relationship between Jesus and the church. Uh, In Revelation 19, in a vision which the Apostle, uh, Apostle John receives from God, he sees a huge number of God's people and they're shouting together, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. So this vision is talking about the end of history, when Jesus will return to make the world right, and we who are God's people, the bride, using the imagery in this passage, will be united with our Lord Jesus, and there'll be a great wedding meal to celebrate. The Lord's Supper also looks forward to that day. We acknowledge this whenever we share the Lord's Supper at St. John's. In our order of service, before we line up to eat the bread and drink the wine, the person leading proclaims, we do this until he returns. To which we respond as a congregation, come, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, Going back to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says the same thing in verse 26. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper looks back to Jesus' death on the cross and also looks forward to his return. And when we eat the bread and drink the wine as part of this meal, through our actions, we proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Even though the Lord's Supper is only to be eaten and drunk by those who follow Jesus, the fact that we do it is an invitation. Everyone is invited to join the party to accept God's abundant grace to us in Christ. So the Lord's Supper is a celebration of who we are as God's covenant people and of the glorious future we have to look forward to. Uh, It was the coming of the light on Friday, as we've heard earlier in the service, which is a celebration of our Lord's goodness and abundance shown to his beloved people in the Torres Strait Islands. And it sounds like it was a massive party. 
a party to rejoice in the coming of the gospel and the freedom that we have in Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every time we shared the Lord's meal, we kept in mind the party we're looking forward to when Christ returns, the final coming of the light. Now here at St John's, we celebrate the Lord's Supper with just a small piece of bread and a tiny shot glass of wine or juice, uh, which mightn't seem particularly celebratory. And although I think there's a place for sharing the Lord's Supper as a full meal, uh, the fact that we only have a small portion can actually be a helpful prompt to us. Uh, Let me explain. So another aspect of Italian culture that I uh, enjoyed to the full when I visited was aperitivo. So officially, aperitivo is a pre-dinner drink. But in northern Italy, they take that definition to the extreme. So often you'd buy a drink and you'd get this big plate with it of meat and cheese and bread and olives. One time there was even a full buffet and all I'd paid for was my drink. That mouthful of bread and wine that we share in the Lord's Supper can act as an aperitivo in the true sense of the word. A small meal that makes us hungrier for the real thing, that grows our eagerness to see Jesus face to face when he returns. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper again and again with our church family, we're whetting our appetites for the final wedding feast. So as you use all your senses to enjoy the Lord's Supper this week and every time we celebrate it, we can think about how our senses will be filled and satisfied at the best wedding meal we'll ever attend. As we see the words of scripture on the screen and the faces of our church family, as we hear each other's voices from the youngest to the oldest coming together to eat and drink, as we smell and taste the chewy bread, the sharp wine and the, or the sugary juice, as we touch the bread and cup, and perhaps as we touch someone's hand or arm during the meal. Through this meal, God connects with us through all our senses to embody his abundance to us and to fire our imaginations for the unimaginable abundance of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Well, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. It's a a family meal. And it's a meal that anticipates the wedding meal. Like we read just before in Isaiah, God will prepare a a feast of rich food for all peoples on the day that death comes to an end and Jesus wipes away every tear from our faces. When we share the Lord's Supper as a community, we're anticipating its fulfillment in Christ's wedding feast. And that means that we can say with Isaiah, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Well, let's stand and sing together to our God. Great is his faithfulness.